Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Media and Communications. I am Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric and Communication at SUNY Geneseo and the host of the channel. Today, we are talking to Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln about their new book entitled Bad 60s, Hollywood Memories of the Counterculture, Anti-War, and Black Power Movement. So I'm excited to welcome Kristen Hurl, author of the book, which came out from University Press of Mississippi in 2018. And just quickly, um, the book is really cool because in addition to covering a wide variety of cultural texts all around this rubric of commemorating the 60s, which is really nice. It, it, I mean, it cuts a swath across political texts and benign sitcoms and all types of things. It also looks at it from perspectives of conservatism and like, like leftism. Because normally when you talk about the 60s, you kind of we're kind of used to this narrative of like oh the the conservatives have shamed the 60s as a way to shame progress and democracy and all that stuff but what Kristen's book does is really gets into the way that the left has also sort of manipulated the 60s and watered it down in some ways in order to preserve kind of a neoconservative version of um, progressivism that we've seen in politics in the last couple of years. So the way that this takes a really nuanced look at the 60s and all of those umbrellas is is one, one of my favorite parts about the book, in addition to just all of the cool media texts. And I'm really um, especially interested in the thesis of the book about the concept of selective amnesia. So I'll just alert readers to this as a thread to think about throughout the interview. And this is on page 16 of the book, and it reads, by focusing on the processes by which selective amnesia regarding the late 60s has been constructed in fictionalized film and television portrayals, this book itself is a site of public recollection. So essentially, it's its own kind of act of selective amnesia, except, of course, trying to bring back into things that have been excluded from sort of our cultural memory of the 60s and, and the legacy thereof. So Kristen, are you still there after my long-winded introduction? I am. I'm here. Awesome. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Do you want to tell you. us a little bit about yourself and then maybe introduce the book and and why you wrote the project or just jump into something cool? Totally up to you. Sure. No, I, um, uh, you, you've introduced me well. Thank you for introducing the book um, so generously. Uh, I'll start with, um, I'm here, I'm a professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and uh, the book is a long project that actually began with a conversation I had with my brother when he was, I think, a freshman in college, and he was noting, he had a project for an assignment and wrote it about the TV show Dharma and Greg, and had noted the ways in which the show's opening credits made um, the the sort of hippie character seem flighty and ridiculous that while her husband, Greg, the kind of stodgy conservative person in this misfit couple was like paying bills and being serious, she was just like randomly blowing bubbles into the air. And um, and that, that jump-started me thinking about all the variety of ways in which that kind of message where um, sort of 
images of 60s era leftist progressivism gets trivialized through characterizations that make it seem not serious, uh, not attentive to politics. And, and that made me think about the implications of that for the decades after the 60s that um, are kind of historically understood as being more conservative. And I thought about the ways in which that shaped even my own uh, my own sense of political subjectivity and what was possible to do in the world. So that's what jump-started it. And I started just chronicling all the places where I saw dismissive portrayals of 60s era dissent in pop culture. And at some point I realized I had much more than I could write about in any single book. So then I started writing. It's a nice origin story. I didn't read. I didn't. I know. I always skip over the forwards. Did you? Did you dedicate the book to your brother for having the idea? <laughs> uh, I, I credit him in the acknowledgments. Uh, certainly. Yeah, that's adorable. Oh no, the inscriptions to Casey. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Um, I love that. My brother just went back to college at the age of thirty-five. So. He has a lot of thoughts. He has a lot of thoughts about things. It's interesting. It's interesting how just people who can just spark ideas, right? Great. So, so where did it go from there? Because the book covers just an incredible swath of media. It's really impressive that you've managed to tie all, all, all of this together. In addition, I mean, I mean, some of these chapters have two, three case studies, you know, which normally, normally in re- for the audience, like we cover one case study, a chapter in a book, and this has eight, nine, ten total. So is there like a certain path you took or is there one that got the whole ball rolling? Uh, no, that's a great question because, you know, for a while I was just chronicling everything. And then, um, and then in working on how to, to organize this for a book, it's roughly thematic and roughly chronological because I noted certain kinds of themes and issues were occurring in a particular time period. And so uh, as as a kid, I remember being enthralled by the TV show Family Ties. And so the image of, I think the image of, of what it meant to be an anti-war activist was first introduced to me then. And then I also remember the show Wonder Years and um, coming out of roughly the same time. And so there were themes about what it meant to sort of come of age uh, politically in those shows that connected directly to a particular kind of memory of the 60s. So that was my first chapter. And then I noticed that in the 1990s, there, uh, were, there were a lot of kind of biopics or, um, or, or narratives that were where the main character was the 60s or 60s era politics. To some extent, this is the case for Forrest Gump. Oh, right. And then there was also yeah. a miniseries called The 60s, which sounds obscure, but for about two decades, it was playing all the time in reruns on VH1 and MTV. Um, and it was also a platform to, at both of before Forrest Gump and the 60s miniseries were really platforms to sell nostalgic records and CDs for grounding 60s era rock music. Uh, but they both told these stories that revolved around activists in very similar ways. So that became a chapter. Um, and then I noted that, you know, for um, the Black Power movement of the late 1960s, there aren't that many movies that centralize the Black Power movement or Black Panther. There are some, um, but not nearly to the extent that white activism is portrayed in Hollywood. 
But I noticed that in a lot of variety of texts, including Forrest Gump, including this miniseries, including episodes of Law and Order, a variety of texts will have a character who is a Black Panther in a particular moment that plays a particular function in the story. And so I think, well, that that to me is the kind of text. It's not one case study, but it's the case of how Black radicals are often portrayed as dangerous and menacing in order to explain the motives of more, quote, sympathetic characters who decide, you know, to follow electoral politics to avoid the dangers of Black radicalism. So, so that became a chapter. Um, and then my, my last chapter, my last case study chapter, I look at uh, a couple of television police procedural dramas, including Law and Order, and there I noticed that that was a snapshot of, I think it chronicled about 12 different television police procedurals that were about resolving a cold case of uh, the murder of a police officer or a security guard at the hands of some radical 60s era political activist organization. And either it was directly referencing, these shows either directly referenced the Weather Underground, or they would have sort of fictionalized names that all spoke back to 60s era radical movements. And so I noticed in that, in those episodes too, the criminals were the activists, and that the process of working to bring those criminals to justice was the structure of the plot in which the prosecutors are always the protagonists of the narrative. So, so that was the organizing structure of the book where I tried to put all these different ways in which 60s era dissent gets remembered in Hollywood to note that actually the narrative about 60s dissent is resilient across many decades. That that the narrative tends to be over and over that um, the kind of radical questioning of capitalism, the questioning of the legacy of colonialism, the critique of law and order, and the violence it does to Black communities, that, that those kinds of critiques are positioned as outside of what it means to be a proper citizen. Uh, and then that has some pretty devastating implications for those of us committed to social justice. Yeah, and you 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 picked an interesting title for chapter three. So so chapter three is titled "Good Citizens, Ambivalent Activists, and Macho Militants" in in the in, so in Forrest Gump in the '60s. These two um, media that you're talking about, and it, you're right because the chapter is all about how it that when you construct the militants as X, and then these kind of activists in this other Y, then you're left with like the ordinary citizen who somehow emerges as the hero of the narrative, even though they're the ones who are literally doing nothing except kind of just not making a choice. It's, I mean, it was really, I really loved the title. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, thank you. Um, it, it was pretty fascinating and, and infuriating to note the ways in which the um, the, the characters that we are invited to most identify with and celebrate are so often characters that have um, no politics, 
or moderate politics or um, who are willing to change their political perspectives and people who are committed to social change are so often the problem, right? The, the ch- obstacle that uh, good citizens must confront in order to create a unified sort of nation to some extent, right? That the, the problem in so many narratives is about political conflict. And if we just could get rid of those mm, right, activists right. who want to critique social injustice that's endemic to our political system, if we could just get rid of those people, then we could, you know, imagine a unified nation. Well, and that and that has an interesting relationship to the chapter previously about the family ties and the, the, the sort of coming of age sitcom dramas, because ostensibly those are not about politics, except for the few episodes that are. But in your argument, they still are because they may not have the activists and the macho militants in the same way. All they have are the good citizens. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if you want because I really liked the um, I was not a, I was actually not. You might be a couple years ahead of me, but neither one of these were kind of in my TV wheelhouse, so I hadn't really seen them, interestingly enough. But I really liked, but I knew kind of a basic sense of The Wonder Years. And I always, I also thought about the title of the show, The Wonder Years, and the way that it kind of didn't coincide with the 60s in some ways. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, absolutely. And I could have written a chapter that put Wonder Years in relationship to Forrest Gump, because in those two media products, the main character is a character that has no political understanding, uh, no political commitments, um, and and there's a lot of sentimental or sentimentality constructed um, in both Forrest Gump and in the Wonder Years toward being pre-political. So my work expands on Lauren Berlant's work on the infantile citizen and pre-political subjects in her book, The Queen of America Goes to Washington City. Uh, And here, my elaboration is just to talk about the ways that, uh, paradoxically, 60s era nostalgia is imbued with a kind of anti-political sentiment. So to be more specific, you know, the narrative in Forrest Gump begins uh, with his childhood, where we learn that he didn't have a high enough IQ to attend school until his mother slept with the, high, with the elementary school principal to get her son into school. And so it starts with this narrative in which, you know, for, the issue is that Forrest Gump is too dumb to understand anything that's going around or and any of the politics that's swirling around him. And yet, and probably he winds up sort of in the middle of a variety of key events that have come to define the 60s uh, so that he uh, ends up, you know, it, it, you know, helping a woman when she's integrating um, by being the first black woman to attend um, the University of, oh, I don't remember it. don't remember the name. Anyhow, so he's there for major moments of the civil rights uh, movement to end segregation. And then he shows, he runs into um, John Lennon, right? Not knowing who John Lennon is. He fights in the Vietnam War, but doesn't know. Can I just say as an aside, 
John Lennon is like the worst possible kind. I just I always find it interesting because I was thinking about this too with the Ferris Bueller monologue. He also references John Lennon. And John Lennon is like who people reference when they're trying to give you the most lame version of an activist. So I always think it's interesting when he's the figure that inspires someone to be like woke for Bachelor because he was so self-indulgent and oh, stripped of just all kinds of intrigue. Yeah. So I just I thought that was a really good point to point out because John Lennon is like a terrible metaphor. He's he's everything that's wrong with what you're talking about. Right. Well, right. Right. I mean, and part of what happens, too, in Forrest Gump is that he runs into a variety of people who've been assassinated. Um, and so the idea is that there he's he's confronted with political assassinations all of his life but is too dumb to realize that that's what's going on. Doesn't understand it. He's like, why did that Why did that nice man get killed? I just don't know. And the whole show, even like the soundtrack of Forrest Gump, the, um, the underscoring of it is, provides all the sentimental music surrounding somebody who had no politics at all, couldn't possibly understand it, and just kind of moves through life ha- haplessly, um, and so this is very similar to the Wonder Years, where Kevin has to confront, you know, his um, a variety of tragedies uh, and and a variety of activists, um, all concerned and devastated by the impacts of the Vietnam War, both at home and abroad. And yet, the refrain that frequently that he says, Forrest Gump, sorry. Uh, Kevin Arnold in the Wonder Years um, frequently then responds by saying, I have no idea what's going on. The show has a, an adult narrator kind of reflecting back on Kevin's life. So the idea is that in the show, the narrator says, oh, you know, I, the, my childhood in the 60s was a time of wonder. And so the show invites us to have a sentimental attachment to a particular vision of childhood in the suburbs where people play in their very green, lush front lawns together. And and yet the show also suggests that during this time, you know, what was wondrous about childhood is that people didn't have politics to them and were confused and confounded by political conflicts that their parents were facing or that their older siblings were facing. But yet, as the show develops in later seasons, the show narrates Kevin's coming into adulthood as a a teenager in high school. And yet, throughout that, Kevin is still confused about what the Vietnam War was about or why people were protesting. As if, like, it's relatable and, and valuable to have nostalgia for someone who never picked up a political belief throughout their adolescent development. Um, so, but in the, in the late 90s, it seemed like there was a lot of media investment in being nostalgic about the aesthetics of the 60s, yet while also kind of jettisoning the the political significance of that period. Right, as if as if the good citizen is the one who just like doesn't get what's going on as if that's something we should all be very very eager to celebrate mm-hmm. right right but that's sort of the that was also part of the ethos of the reagan revolution yes right? mm-hmm. the president when asked about his own policies was like i don't remember 
right? Or who made up narratives um, from movies to explain political events as if they were real. So, so in that sense, that that element of the good citizen, the, the good citizen as an infantile or citizen or pre-political subject, I think is a kind of conservative image. But then there's also a more kind of liberal image of the good citizen, which is probably embodied more by characters such as um, the parents on Family Ties, Elise and Stephen Keaton, or by some of the other characters in the 60s miniseries who do have a political commitment, um, but who are torn between whether or not they want to support sort of radical protest movements that are critical of capitalism or whether or not to become kind of good liberal citizens who invest most of their time in building nuclear families um, and working in of well-paying jobs as part of their civic duty. So, so there are other ways too in which like having a political belief system may be valued so long as it doesn't confront or challenge mainstream institutions committed to a capitalist economic system or to two-party politics. So yeah. And there's also like um, it's it's also like even be like it's just like interpersonally, you're not supposed to be. It's it's weird the way that the Wonder Years, especially I think, like celebrates kind of this angsty teenagerness quality, but the angst is fine as long as as it's coming from like your hormones, but it's not okay if it's coming from your political environment. Totally. Yes. Which I find just so. It reminds me of. Did did you watch um, Freaks and Geeks? Yes, I did. So Lindsay, so Lindsay uh-huh. Weir's a really good example, right? And uh-huh. that's the seven, right there. That's the seventies, but she's very nostalgic for the sixties. But she's like this. Remember, she's always like she's wearing like the military jacket, and she's always like trying to like make this call for activism. But she's way too like socially anxious and and awkward to actually know what she's doing. So it's another one of those moments where like politics and angst get married together, even though one has a purpose and the other one is just you stewing in your own helplessness as an individual. And why on earth would we want? either of those for someone, let alone like the one and hate the other. I mean, yeah, I, I vibe very hard with this book. Right. There is a, um, that's what you've indicated too, is that there is a much broader sort of rhetorical move that is made throughout public culture and politics that attributes, um, dissent and protest itself with youth. And so that it's constantly kind of constructed as where people's protest um, and people who pose pose fundamental challenges to the justice of our current economic and political system um, are often characterized as being too young to know better. Characterizing then protest as moments of youthful indiscretion and that um, you know, people, when they grow up, will become more conservative because they'll be more knowledgeable and worldly at that point. And, you know, I've seen that a lot with a lot of the responses to Greta Thunberg's climate change dissent, that she, she's often easily dismissed, or not easily dismissed, but she's often dismissed um, because she's just, she's young. Right? 
Um, and, and that's a theme that runs across a lot of the selective amnesia of the 60s, where the Keaton parents learned to grow up and out of the 60s. And that the, the theme of the show is that Alex Keaton, in many ways their adolescent son, is more mature and responsible than they are because he's learned to grow up. Yeah. And, and they're just, and they're just these, well, and he's, he's a total neocon, right? I right. mean, yes. And they're just these dumb flighty, they're like Dharma. Yeah. He's got a picture of William F. Buckley above his bed. I, that's right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's and, uh, right. I <laughs> wears a suit to school, even in high school. Um, and uh, when they have a, their fourth child, the parent, the parents do. Alex uh, reminds him when on show and tell day to bring a sign with him. This little boy, his brother, has a sign that says, um, "I know what's mine," right? Because like he's concerned that his little brother is learning too much about sharing at school, and and so it makes fun. And the family ties throughout its seasons poked a little bit of fun at sort of the the what happens if you take sort of neoliberalism to its limit but at the same time he was always the more stable character he did and alex keaton doesn't change his political perspective throughout the seasons but yet his parents become you know left less less left-leaning as the show continues that they eventually abandon their radical friends uh, they decide that really the, the best thing they can do, and I think even on uh, at least Keaton says this to her husband at the end of season one, that the most important political thing that Stephen Keaton could do is how he raises his family and takes care of his children. Um, so, so they learn to grow up and out of the 60s. Um, but the children of the 80s, um, if they have conservative political opinions, that just means that they're already pretty mature and don't need to change. Yeah. And you see this repeated, interestingly enough, in like social science research about like they'll do studies about how older people like like older adults are always more likely to be conservative than younger adults. But of course, their measurements for that stuff are always really constructed. And what's a conservative in the 80s versus 30 years ago? And they're just using these labels and the idea is always that you evolve into conservatism. Right. I think right. that, um, and I, you can check me on this later. I think it's Jack Weinberg. There was somebody who was really involved in sixties era social movements, um, who became a sociologist and he went back and interviewed a lot, many people that he knew who were part of the anti-war left and found that actually he couldn't, he couldn't document that they had become decidedly, much more conservative. Like some of them who had abandoned the idea of electoral politics um, reconsidered and, and considered like, oh yeah, voting has a place in politics. So maybe to some extent they became less radical in terms of thinking that, that voting matters, but, but no one had these swings where they went from being uh, activists to uh, conservatives in the way that so much of popular culture suggests that they have. So Jeff Weinberg, uh, Jack, 
Jack Weinberg, right? Yeah. He's the he's the no, don't trust the thirty year old. He don't trust the over thirty guy, right? Okay, yeah. I did not know that. I didn't know that he became a sociologist and went back and actually proved that his youthful intent, like impulse, was right. That's very funny. I'll have to find that work. I that's think that's. Great. I can find you the citation. It, it, so many of the people who are really involved in the student new left movement have yes, become right. sociologists. Huh, um, that's, that's fascinating. I think there's a way too in which um, dissent and the the counterculture and the part of the legacy of activism from the late '60s is in is in higher education in the academy. Insofar as a lot of people brought the perspectives that they took away from their experiences as activists and brought it into research later on. And I think that, uh, I think George Lipsitz has an essay about that, where he discusses the ways in which, um, with the repressive, with you know, the the heavy repression against dissent in, right. in the late 60s and early 70s, that a lot of those dissident ideas, you know, went towards spaces where they wouldn't get their heads bashed in. That's my language, not his. Huh. Which, yeah, which makes sense. I mean, I mean, one of the things that the, I mean, it's interesting because in some ways the sanitization of the 60s has also actually undermined its own argument because people like do forget how much that kind of dissent cost people. Right. You know, so that's like a double-edged sword there for people that are trying to to correct this selective amnesia. One thing I think I've seen in many of the, the programs and films that I studied are some pretty spectacular images of violence against activists. Yes. That's, I mean, weirdly, mm-hmm. that's part of the nostalgic memory of the 60s is a kind of... Um, yeah, part, part of the memory is the memory of extraordinary violence against dissidents. And this seems like it's a, a kind of melancholic um, reenactment right. mm-hmm. of that violence that I, I almost want to call it nostalgia. I don't think that's exactly what it is, but I think there's something about remembering the violence, remembering the trauma that, that both addresses the injustness of um, the police and the National Guard and, and those who bashed and banked up activists. But at yeah. the same time, the problem is about like, oh, what could activists have done better to avoid that? Right. The, mm-hmm. the, the problem is always that there's a macho militant who exacerbated conflict in order to create that condition for violence to right. occur. So, right. so even when, when violence against dissidents is constructed as a tragedy, the tragedy is always the fault of activists who weren't more cautious. Yeah, which yeah, which actually is a good transition. We haven't talked yet about the stuff that you do with them, um, the Malcolm X and the Panther. Yeah. Uh, not the Panther and Panther. So mm-hmm. the the sort of the portrayals of black radical militants. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, so that chapter for me is a little different than other chapters because I do try to write about a whole range of texts that have remembered the Black Panther Party and Malcolm X. And so 
in the first half of this chapter, I do note that there are some portrayals that do foreground some of the concerns and criticisms that um, Black Power advocates from Malcolm X to the Black Panther Party had of white supremacy and the ways in which white supremacy impacts Black lives, the way in which the police are a a physical, sort of have functioned as a physical threat to activists, the ways in which the drug war um, has disparately negatively impacted Black communities in devastating ways. Uh, And that part of what I think is is disconcerting about how some of those memories are constructed, say in Spike Lee's film, Malcolm X, and in this um, sort of action thriller movie by Mario Van Peebles called Panther. Both of these films come out in the 1990s and they're sympathetic portrayals. And yet the conclusion to both of them is the assassination of Black radicals, Malcolm X, his assassination is the conclusion to the movie in Spike Lee's Malcolm X. And then in Black Panther, the film ends with fictionalized characters being shot multiple times by law enforcement with the aid of the corrupt FBI. Now, I like aspects of these narratives because they they feature the claims and concerns of Black activists. And yet the problem is that when these narratives end with the tragic, unjust murders of charismatic leaders, I don't think that that provides a kind of narrative for us to envision the long future of Black activism for racial justice or to see how both of those, both the Black Power movement's uh, achievements have been the result of like community-based, community-led mm-hmm. movements of, of uh, a lot of people, including many women who have been on the front lines for social justice. And so we don't have a memory of sort of committed communal activism mm-hmm. for racial justice. What we have is if, if we, the most positive memory I can find that legitimizes Black dissent continues to provide a narrative to mainstream publics that it will end in tragedy. Yeah, you wrote this beautifully. I'm just, I like to read things people wrote. So um, on page 141, this is one of my, I'm only allowed to highlight 10 passages. Otherwise I get overwhelmed and can't find anything. So this was, this made the top 10. Uh, So you write, By consigning radical activism to the traumatic memories of Black victimhood, Malcolm X and Panther implicitly suggest that radical dissent offers little recourse for African-Americans seeking racial justice, even as they provide counter-memories that question the legitimacy of the civil rights subject as a model of Black political agency. These movies obscure how activism for fundamental change has been advanced due to the collective efforts of activists throughout the United States. And then you link that back to the selective amnesia around the narratives, which, you know, and and this is a really important point because the selective amnesia, it was even still created by people who are trying to correct for other type, right? It's just kind of like it's selective amnesia all the way down. You just have to choose which one you want. And in this case, 
there were improvements made over the dominant narrative, but still with the, the, you know, this lens of like, yeah, the, the, the black male martyr that kept showing up in these movies kind of has its own baggage that you, I think just, I think this is a, this is a great chapter. Um, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I mean, I mean, it's very sad, obviously, but I just meant the, the yeah. writing and the description and the close, the close attention to the text. That, that's the part I enjoyed. Not the, not the stories. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> <These Right>. <laughs> Oh, uh, one other scholar to follow is um, the work of Keith Miller, who is at, I believe it's, it's either ASU or the University of Arizona. Uh, but he has done some work also looking at the history of the writing of the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley, which is uh, the material that Spike Lee drew from in making the movie. And Miller's argument is that, especially in the last part of the book, that there isn't a lot of evidence that um, that Malcolm X would have authorized some of the themes and ideas that emerged in the last part of that book. Um, so that because Alex Haley himself, he, he, he wrote for Reader's Digest and had kind of a lot of racial uplift narratives in Reader's Digest. And so the narrative structure of the autobiography of Malcolm X closely follows Haley's work, or the, the kind of how Haley wrote narratives more, so, more than anything that we can find from the notes of Malcolm X. Huh. Be- because because he has sort of this subconscious agenda to for racial uplift that maybe wasn't authorized by Malcolm X's behavior is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, that's huh. Um, Keith Miller is at ASU for the record. If anyone's going to go Google Keith, no, you're, I just wanted to check real quick. I'm I'm notorious for just being like, oh, I'm going to mention this thing, and I don't really know if this person wrote it. And then some somebody writes in, and they're like, you really need to fact check before you talk. <laughs> Who's got time for fact checking? You know, clearly not Alex Haley. No, just kidding. But I mean, I think for the listener, I mean, one of the things we run into this problem as rhetoricians is everyone's always like, well, you don't know that they meant to do it. Okay. So things can happen whether someone means to it or not. And so in this case, whether Alex Haley was, first of all, Malcolm X is like at this point rhetorical. I mean, you get to, right. You're going to have to, it's selective amnesia. You're going to have to choose how you want to articulate. And Alex and Alex Haley is going to be driven by motivations for telling Malcolm X's story and those motivations color which information he chooses and doesn't choose at a very subconscious level. So just for people listening, I sometimes think we get this pushback that like, well, I'm sure Malcolm X didn't mean that or Alex Haley didn't mean it. And it's like, yeah, they may not have, but the fact that it happened anyway is testimony to the way that we, I think, you know, white people especially um, want to see racially either these traumatic narratives of how all of this was just one giant cacophony in vain, or these very radically uplifting, which is what you're seeing more now, right? The Hidden Figures movie, um, some of these uh, other movies that are much more uplifting in terms of, you know, now it's like, oh yeah, black people have always been part of the story. It's like, well, we got to think about the motivations for why someone would want to put a text out like that. Not that it's not true, but that it has a, there must be a reason why now you're telling this story this way. Right. I mean, I think that there, especially for looking at commercial media texts that that these products are not the the result of one author, one writer, one creator, but a variety of different factors help to enable certain kinds of narratives 
and stories. And so this has a major impact on how we remember dissident movements from the past. So absolutely how we remember Spike Lee or how we remember uh, the Weather Underground is very much also a product of how we tell stories. And so the impulse towards telling uplifting narratives, uplifting narratives that can sell products really well, um, uplifting narratives that conform to a narrative of the American dream of individual hard work uh, and resilience leading to individual achievements all factor into how we tell a story about activism. So in some ways, selective amnesia is then the product of mm. uh, a commercial media culture that wants us to feel really good about the stories that entertain us. Right. Um, and that, or, feel really, or feel really bad in very familiar ways. Right. Right. But yeah. Either way, the, the kind of pleasure of the text right. is also constructed as a way to sustain the the media organizations and construct them. Yeah. So, um, and so I wanted to clarify one aspect of how I've constructed selective amnesia, mm-hmm. uh, because also I, I want to make a political point about that construct that I think. Yeah. Go right ahead. Why? Um, and there's, there's a, a lot of research in public memory that indicates, yes, all, all memories are partial and incomplete. And I don't want to suggest that Hollywood is responsible in any way for constructing like the true or real or full or whole memory of the 60s, because that's not possible. Um, because how how people experienced the 60s and experienced events were very much shaped by you know their own experiences about what transpired. Um, For me, my interest in talking about selective amnesia is to think about the politics of the patterned ways in which the story about the late 60s has gotten told. That I think that particularly for um, events where organizations challenged institutions that are considered foundational to American history, like capitalism or like two-party politics or like the nuclear mm-hmm. family. It's like when organizations in history or individuals have challenged those kinds of foundational institutions, that those stories often get delegitimized or glossed over, I think, mm-hmm. in very particular ways. So for me, selective amnesia is specifically about the ways that that radicalism itself becomes illegitimate or non-existent in our sort of national public memory. A lot with the Bernie campaign. Right. Like you just, and that wasn't even, that wasn't the kind of radicalism you're talking about, but that, but it was, it was still like, oh, that won't work with this. We can't do this. You know, it's, yeah, I, I mean. What else were you going to say? I was just hopping in there with a thought. Yeah, no, I, I was, so I was thinking about the ways in which a variety of other movements are either kind of ignored or rendered non-existent, or when I talk to my students about, um, you know, labor organizing and activism, um, that they don't have stories about what happened. 
um, or there are gaps in which we just don't think about sort of radical challenges as part of the nation's fabric, even though it is. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at what what media, what Hollywood media has done with the union movement, especially, it's right. it is a very specific story told again and again that you know has some real problematic implications for people's support of unions. Right. Sim- similar to the right Black Panther and the, and the militant organizers. Yeah. Well, you can write another book on that. <laughs> so we are. Um, we're at 43 minutes, and I do like to just kind of be respective of the fact that most people listening to this are kind of running out of time. But we didn't get to the police procedurals in any detail, and we didn't get to talk about the conclusion where you actually talk about sort of 60s and the new millennium. So is is there anything in that cluster that you really enjoyed about the book or thought really tied the argument together that you maybe want to hit on before we wrap? Uh, well, what I would hit on is that um, – you know, one, that, that these kinds of frameworks for remembering the 60s are ongoing. So as I was writing my conclusion, I was finding more examples of them. Uh, the first um, NBC television show that was released and streaming simultaneous to its release and broadcast was a show called Aquarius with uh, David Duchovny that got terrible reviews and ratings, but yet they, they greenlit it for several seasons. All the same themes were there, right? Um, and so, you know, first, this is a recurring kind of trope that still has meaning and significance. And I think now that it's, that we see caricatures that have emerged, that that then becomes inspiration for more caricatures. But the other thing I said in my conclusion that I also want to highlight is that this is not the only way that we can or have to remember the role of the 60s for contemporary politics. And we can find other spaces with more diverse representations and more meaningful exploration of the context and motives that drove activists at the time. And so I point to even the, um, there's an animated documentary about the 1968 Democratic National Convention that it's not perfect, but it's way more nuanced than other portrayals. And so for those of us who care about the memory of the 60s, I think there are a variety of ways in which there are counter memories that have existed as well that deserve credit and circulation and attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and I can't recommend enough the book to, I mean, I, I and then, you know, for the listeners, I only choose books that I was really excited to read, and I only do interviews on books that I really enjoyed. And not that I don't say this about everything, but I highly recommend this book. I mean, we 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 barely touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of how much more there is in here that Kristen has just taken a lot of care and detail to outline. So I guess, um, is there anything else you want to add? Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention before we close is also the interesting way in which 80s nostalgia uh, recurs in pop culture, even talking with my students right now. There's also now an emerging, like, they're interested in texts from the 80s. They're familiar with narratives from the 80s. You mentioned Ferris Bueller a moment ago, and I was thinking about the ways in which my students are very familiar with Ferris Bueller and the, the legacy of Ferris Bueller <laughs> um, as one example. And so I think as we're talking about nostalgia and the periodization of different decades, I think 
now more attention can be paid to that. Um, and I think that you you have a podcast that's also been talking about some of that. Yeah. They, oh, thank you so much. But that's actually funny because the so we do a monologue assignment in my public speaking class every semester, and the and they have to give a monologue with a unique theme, and they all and they and they always choose my students always choose that Ferris Bueller monologue, and. And I'm always like, what do you think the meaning of this monologue is? And it's like, I don't know, like, uh, believe in yourself. I was like, no, he's a, he's a moron. He's just, <laughs> the, the, the genius of this monologue, whether, is that John Hughes? I think it's John Hughes. Like, wh- whether Hughes knew it or not, the genius of the monologue is that Furious Bueller is, do you listen to the podcast, um, uh, the, the, oh God, the villain, the villain was right. I think it's called, I listen to it sometimes, but they did an episode. Oh, it's so good. So they did an episode about how it's actually the principal, Mooney, who's the hero, and the sister, I would also add, who's Jennifer Gray, who's the hero of that story. Because Bueller is like just a fast-talking, vapid con artist. And they're the ones trying to hold him accountable for his shitty behavior, which directly influences Cameron. Um, And the opening monologue establishes his like snake oil salesman personality. You're not, if you, if you're excited about him, then you've been trapped into being superficial, you know? And of course, then they're just like, well, can I do the monologue or not? You know, but it's just so funny because they're so attracted to it, but it just, it has no sub, you know, substance at all. And, and, you know, Ferris Bueller is kind of like an Alex um, Keaton in, in a sense, right? He's just, he's such a, He's such a like just his own little private lib- uh, neocon economy, just walking around his own. He's just like one giant corporation in the in the body of a single person, just walking around building his brand the whole time. And and he's the right politics has no place in his life at all, even though it saturates everything that that he does. Right, and the celebration is also of being ignorant and and I mean, devaluing education for not offering anything to somebody who's right, enterprising. Yes, right. Yeah. I forgot. Right. Yeah. And the, and the whole de- and the parents, right. The devaluation of the parent of the, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, and discipline and all, yeah, I mean, it's just great. Um, but yes, that is actually episode one of the podcast, which if anyone's interested is called rhetorically speaking, it's the word rhetoric and then my name L E E and then speaking. And we are on all the podcasts, but yeah, you should definitely check out, um, that, uh, that podcast, I, th- I think it's called the villain is right. But if you just look up Ferris Bueller villain po- podcast, it'll, it'll come up. Um, so is there anything else now that I've gotten a chance to wax nostalgic about how much I hate Ferris Bueller? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm happy to answer any other questions, but well, uh, let's, uh, are you go- do you want to give your email or do you want them? Do you want yeah. listeners to email me questions and send them to you? Uh, I'd be happy. So to give people my email address, my email address is K-H-O-E-R-L-2, just the number two, at unl.edu, which is my uh, first letter, my first name, my last name, and the number two. And so if people have any feedback, ideas, um, other examples, uh, please contact me. I'd love to exchange thoughts, notes, answer any questions anyone might have. Yeah, and I encourage you. And again, I would just like to quick shout out to the University Press of Mississippi, who um, is your is your publisher for this book. The University Presses help support 
this show. They also help us as academics get our work out. It would be very hard to do this if we were trying to go through mainstream presses. So just uh-huh. shout out to University Press of Mississippi. For anyone listening at home, I did notice that um, Dr. Hurl's book is actually on sale on Amazon. So you can get the Kindle version for $28, which is a steal for a book like this. And if you're not interested in buying it for yourself, you can always request that your library pick up a copy or you can buy a hard copy either from University Press of Mississippi or from Amazon, and you can actually donate it to the library so that these ideas can get out to other people. But if you're a listener of the podcast and you enjoy all of the free labor that we all put in for you, uh, that's a really great way to get our work out, which is ultimately the most important thing, and also support the presses and the podcast itself. So um, did you like working with you? Did you like working with Mississippi? I loved working with yeah, them. I heard good things. Yeah. They were fantastic. And the work they put in, even to the, the cover, the artwork. Yes, the cover. The I love the cover. That yeah. was very... Clever, but they that team there is um, they're responsive, fast, engaged, lovely. I'd recommend any to them to anybody who is working on a book project around the themes of rhetoric, race, and media. Awesome. Well, I will reach out. Actually, I should reach out to the editor there and see if there's anybody that wants to come on the podcast. With that said, did you have a book that you want to recommend for the next episode? Yes, I do. I would love to recommend a new book that came out by Angela Awayo. The book is Documentary Resistance. And so in this book, Aguayo is a, she's a rhetorical critic and a documentary filmmaker herself. And she looks at documentary as a material force of social change. And so she looks at the relationship between documentary film production, messages, and their circulation to explain how documentaries are a tool of political engagement. She actually went around the country and interviewed a lot of people who were involved in the activist documentary film movement of the 1970s. But she also provides a history of documentary film production. So she writes about Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 and Mm -hmm. the activist street tapes of um, the documented and police force against Black Americans. And so she looks at the circulation and production of a variety of different documentary forms to show how a lot of sort of publics um, emerge around documentary media itself. Awesome. Aguayo. Okay. I've already looked it up. I will reach out to Angela and see if they would like to be on the next episode. Well, thank you again, Kristen, not only for the interview, but for this just fabulous book. And I really hope people pick it up and read it because this is work that definitely deserves closer attention than we were able to give it in 50 minutes. But thank you for doing um, the quick and dirty, as, as I like to call it. And um, I will. Yep. And I'll put your email in the show notes in case listeners do have a question. It'll be easy to find it because obviously most of them are driving and will not have time to right. write down your email. All right. Well, you take good care of yourself and um, good luck with the tornado warnings. Hopefully they stay warnings. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. You too. And goodbye, listeners. Thank you for joining us.